So I made a joke in the first service that, in my experience, all proms are a little tacky. My wife texted me and said, if you're going to diss proms, you should make sure everyone knows that you and I did not go to one together. <laughs> letting you know that. One of the things that I have found most interesting this time through uh, reading through the Gospel of Mark in these first few chapters is the way that people flock to Jesus. I mean, I've always known it's there, but it's just standing out to me a little differently this time. The way they just flock to him. Time and again, we read that wherever Jesus went, the crowds were sure to follow. And in Mark 1, they brought to him, Mark says, all the sick and demon-possessed, so much so that that Mark even says at one point, says, the whole town gathered at the door. And a little bit later, uh, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, and after strict instructions not to do so, the man went out and told everybody. And the crowds then came to Jesus, and by then we're told, uh, so much so that Jesus had to kind of go into hiding. And yet, Mark concludes, the people still came to him from everywhere. And these crowds pop up in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, they're all over the place. Cynically, of course, we could say, oh, they're just after a miracle, they're just after healing, they're just after power, they just want a good show, and that all may be true. However, as I said a couple of weeks ago, at the most basic level, what they longed for was the reality of the kingdom of God. What they longed for was the kingdom of God, whether they knew it or not. And whoever we are, wherever we are on that journey, we too long for the kingdom of God, whether we really know it or not. It's not, you know, when when I look at what's going on in the world, what I long for is the kingdom of God. When I see sickness or, or death or um, injustice or hatred or some natural catastrophe, whether it's in the news or it happens to somebody I know and love, I long for something better. I long for the kingdom of God. And it all points to the reality that this is what we were designed for. <clears throat> we were designed for something better. And what we were made for is already trickling into the world and will one day become a flood. And there are hints of it all around us. Whatever it is we see in Jesus, healing, power, wisdom, a way of life worth pursuing, all of it points to, all of it hints at the present and coming kingdom of God. All of it. If we are sick, we long for healing because it is the foretaste of the kingdom of God. If we are grieving, we long for comfort because it is the foretaste of the kingdom of God. If we long for our suffering and our pain to come to an end, we do so because uh, a life without suffering is where we're all headed. And it is the foretaste of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God will one day be victorious over all of these things and more. Revelation 21 uh, verses 1 to 7 tells us of a day when God will sit on his throne. And when he will, wipe, he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him and he will wipe every tear from our eyes because there will be no more mourning or crying or death or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. And he says, and behold, I am making all things new. And that, I think, is what the people in Mark's gospel, as they chase, chase after Jesus, what they long for is the renewal of all things. For whatever they think they see or want or need in Jesus is really about the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And one day, as Jesus has demonstrated in our journey through Mark so far, the kingdom of God will be victorious over absolutely everything that opposes it. We might say that the kingdom is oppositionally defiant to everything that gets in its way. 
What Jesus does in Mark so far and in our passage today is the preview and the promise of things to come. So the good news we're going to celebrate this week is simply this. Jesus is the preview for the coming attractions. Jesus is the preview of coming attractions. After his encounter with the man tormented by the legion of unclean spirits that we looked at last week and earlier in chapter 5, Jesus crosses back to the other side of the lake where the crowds again uh, surround him and, and then enter the, the, the synagogue leader, Jairus. He, he enters the picture. And I can imagine a backstory with Jairus that maybe initially he kind of wanted to keep his distance from Jesus. I mean, he's an important person in the local synagogue and the faith community. Perhaps he just wanted to stand back a little bit. Not sure what to make of Jesus, not wanting to uh, irritate other religious leaders, not wanting to make waves in the religious community. But then his 12-year-old daughter becomes ill and, and things don't look good. And so he, like others who have been flocking to Jesus, he decides that maybe there's something about Jesus that I need to consider or reconsider. And as his daughter's condition gets worse, he becomes even more desperate in verse 22. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Jairus, like the crowds before and after him, longs for a miracle, a healing, and in so doing, though he, doesn't, he may not know it, what he is really longing for is that the kingdom of God would become a reality in his life and in his daughter's life. Then something happens. The crowd presses in to Jesus, along with a desperately ill woman who, Mark tells us, had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And according to Jewish law, she was unclean. She was ritually unclean. She should avoid contact with all faithful Jewish people or she would make them unclean as well. And she has been this way for 12 years. Not only has she been ill for 12 years, she's also been excluded. She's been left out. She's been shamed. Her ritual uncleanness has kept her from community. For 12 years, whatever human contact she's had has been minimal. See, for her, the kingdom of God is not only about her physical and spiritual well-being, it is also about her place in the community. It is relational. I think the same is true for all of us. It's not only about our spiritual or physical well-being, it is about our place in the community. It is relational. This woman who is lower in status than Jairus because she is a woman, because she is unclean, this woman throws a wrench into Jesus' plan to go and heal Jairus' daughter. Unlike Jairus, she is not even given a name in this story, which testifies to her status. And the two of them couldn't be further apart unless she were also a Gentile. But she, like Jairus before her, is, is desperate. So in addition to whatever else the kingdom of God opposes in this passage, it is clear that it stands in opposition to discrimination between the highborn and the lowborn. It stands in opposition, the kingdom stands in opposition to discrimination between the well-off and the poor, between the respected and the shame, between the clean and the unclean. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons, if not the main reason, that Jesus stops and has an interaction with her, I mean, she's been healed, he doesn't have to do anything else, but he stops and has an interaction with her, and I'm convinced that one of, these reasons, one of the reasons he does this is because he wants to demonstrate to us and to those gathered around the equalizing power of the kingdom of God. She is just as important as Jairus and his daughter. 
Jesus' interaction with this woman and Jairus in the matter of just a few verses in Mark 5 is a preview of the coming social realities of the kingdom of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and the ground is level at the entrance to the kingdom too. And so in the midst of all of these other people who would have shunned her, who would have tried to steer clear of her, who would treat her as if she were of less value than they, she makes her move. She knows that Jesus has the power to heal her if she can only touch his clothing. And so she sneaks up behind him, which is sometimes all we have the energy, the strength, of the faith to do. She sneaks up behind Jesus, and as she moves through these people, everyone she touches becomes unclean. And she reaches out and she touches Jesus' clothing, and in doing so, she makes him unclean, according to Jewish law. And she is healed immediately. And she knows it. Jesus knows it too. He senses that power has gone out of him, but he does not know who touched him. And I want to say, but wait a minute, Jesus is God. It seems like he knows an awful lot in the pages of the Gospels. He knows power has gone out from him, but he does not know who has touched him. When Jesus became human, the incarnation, when he took on flesh and blood and bone and walked among us as one of us, he took on the limitations of being human. There's no other way to be human except to take on the limitations of being human. And so I don't think he knows, well, let's put it this way, perhaps he doesn't know everything automatically. When we see Jesus in the Gospels being particularly aware of the things or perceiving the hearts and minds of those around him, maybe it's not automatic. Maybe it's not his superpower. Maybe it's because he's so in step and so in tune with the Father God and God's Spirit that these things are supernaturally revealed to him in the way that things might be supernaturally revealed to you and me if we were praying about something or praying for someone and we suddenly sense, hey, I think God might be telling me something. Maybe it's like that. Maybe a lot of what we see Jesus doing is in some way open to you and to me as well, to which we might want to ask, then why don't we see more of Jesus power and work happening in and through our lives? Good question. Well, I'll speak for myself. I imagine the reason that I don't see more of Jesus' work and power flowing through my life is because I'm not as transformed of a human being as it is possible to be. I'm not as in tune with God's Spirit and God's presence all around me as Jesus was. This is one of the reasons our pursuit of Christiformity, our transformation into Christ-likeness, is so important. Without it, we miss out on part of that abundant life that God in Christ has offered us. It's the reason that while all of our three touchstones at ECC of welcome, transformation, and presence are vital, all of them are vital, if we're not being transformed, friends, if we're not on the journey toward Christiformity, we will never get welcome and presence right. We will never do it as well as it could be done. This is probably a good place to introduce a little sidebar, a little sidebar on the touchstones. There, there have been a few new faces uh, in our congregation in the last few weeks, and I don't want to assume everybody's on the same page when I say these things. So, Our ECC touchstones were developed in the context of the ministry planning team, and uh, we believe that they are qualities. They are sort of 
quintessential features of who God is calling us to be in our mission as a congregation. They're going to help shape and evaluate mission and ministry going forward into the future. And so by the touchstone of welcome, we mean we are a place of hospitality, grace, and community for all people. By the touchstone of transformation, we mean we provide resources and relationships for the journey from curiosity about Christ to Christiformity in Christ. And by the touchstone of presence, we mean that in and through us, the kingdom is made present in the world, that we are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. And having said that, I just invite you to join us for community gatherings this Wednesday evening. 5.45 is dinner, 6.30 is uh, programming. We're going to have a discussion or more of a, a time of prayerful reflection and reading uh, John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. We're going to pray through that and Jesus encounter uh, with her and see what it teaches us about our own welcome, transformation, and presence. And I hope you will make time to join us. So Jesus sees that power has gone out from him, but he, but he doesn't know who touched him. So he asked his disciples, and they don't get it, as his disciples and we often don't get it. What do you mean who touched you? Everyone touched you. But Jesus knows that someone has touched him, armed with an incredible and desperate faith, and something miraculous has happened. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. To the question of why this woman is healed, it is more than her physical needs, although that is certainly important. It is also about peace. It is also about peace, which in the Jewish understanding of that word means much more than an absence of conflict or war. It also means much more than inner peace, although that is certainly included. The Hebrew word that is being represented here in the Greek is the word shalom. Shalom meant more than just peace. It meant wholeness. It meant wholeness physically, socially, spiritually. It meant prosperity. Everything is right. Everything's just the way God wants it. Jesus wants not only this woman's physical health restored, he wants her to know, and everybody standing around her and staring at her to know, that she has not only been healed, she has been made clean. I think when she comes and tells him the whole truth in this story, it's because she wants to confess that she's made him unclean, in part. But that's not what happened. She should have made Jesus unclean, but instead he made her clean. The kingdom of God stands opposed to and will one day be victorious over anything that shatters shalom in the world and in our lives. This, this woman standing in the community has been restored back to what it was 12 years ago and more. <clears throat> Why? Because the kingdom of God has come near and things are different than they were before. When Jesus says to her, be freed from your suffering, he does not only mean her physical suffering, she is freed from her emotional and social suffering as well. There is a wholeness to life in the kingdom of God. And if God's kingdom will one day fully establish his shalom, then you and I can begin to experience that shalom even now, and we can begin to partner with God in working toward that shalom in the world. When I see a trailer, as I did a couple of weeks ago, for the new TV show, Star Trek Picard, I want to watch that show. 
I want to immerse myself in that show. I want to be back in the world of Captain Jean-Luc Picard and all those friends I haven't seen in 20 years. That's what a trailer or a preview for coming attractions is supposed to do. Make you want to be there. Make you want to be a part of it. And when the people see the preview of Shalom at work in our lives, they long to experience that too. Jesus' ministry and our lives of faithful discipleship and community are previews of things to come as well. Right on cue. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. When Jesus tells the the mourners not to mourn the little girl's merely asleep they laugh at him and that's strange to us as it should be they're likely laughing however because they were paid to be there they were hired mourners in that culture in that day in that age it was expected that if someone died in your family you hired public professional mourners makes no sense to us even if you were poor there was some expectation you would do that but certainly if you were well off see these mourners are not emotionally involved at all. This, this was just a thing they did. So they laugh at Jesus, and then, as the New International Version puts it, that he, Jesus put them all out, but that is too polite. The word has with it a sense of force, almost violence, but I hesitate to say that. A sense of force. So Jesus threw them out. Let's go with that. Jesus resists that which opposes the kingdom of God. Then Jesus and the others went into the little girl's room. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. What Jesus says to this little girl is not an incantation. It's not even a prayer. It's the same thing an adult might say to a child who's sleeping too much. Wake up. Get up. It's time to get out of bed. Get up, little girl. But make no mistake, she was dead. One of the things Jesus is demonstrating here is that, in fact, because of the kingdom of God which he is bringing, those of us who are citizens of the kingdom of God will die. But that death will be more like sleep. Why? Because even though we die, we will wake up. There is a better world coming. And Jesus is a preview of that world. As he put it in John 11, 25, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. God's kingdom will be victorious over all that opposes it, including death. So the picture that we've gotten so far in these first five chapters of Mark is one of Jesus announcing and demonstrating God's kingdom repeatedly standing in direct opposition to sin disease, the demonic, the discrimination that separates us from God and one another, and now death. As a preacher, I would love it if all of these words began with D. And I was informed after the last service 
that I could change the word sin to disobedience and it would work just fine. So I could do that, but I really like to make sure you hear the word sin. (laughs) This is a preview of things to come. This is the reality that the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in the heavens. And if that is where Jesus is taking all things, then, then we who follow him, we who are citizens of God's kingdom, also stand in, in opposition to sin, to disease, to the demonic, to discrimination, and to death. We too can be victorious in these things. Jesus is a preview of coming attractions. What does that mean for us? If God's kingdom has already come and will one day come and be most fully and victorious over all that opposes it, then you and I get the privilege of doing the same, living into these things. What would it look like for us to take on the model and the mantle that we see at work in Jesus in these things? Well, we can certainly oppose death and disease and discrimination and the demonic all by praying against it, praying for God's will to be done, for God's kingdom to come. We can follow Jesus' example in that way, and most of us, most of us probably do that on some level. We can also oppose death, disease, these things by supporting uh, ministries that oppose the causes for these things, both in the local church and through other organizations, like our partnership as a denomination with World Vision and Covenant Kids Congo or New Hope Haiti or any ministries and missionaries we as a church or you as an individual may support. Jesus' final victory over these things is, is ongoing and yet to come. But when it comes to our sin, there is something that is available to us immediately. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. When Jesus announced God's kingdom back in chapter 1, he told us how to step into that kingdom, how to experience that forgiveness. We repent. We repent. We said then that the New Testament Greek word translated as repent simply meant to change your mind. I mean, it's a pretty substantial change of mind, but it's a change of mind. If we are to experience the victory over sin in the here and now and in the hereafter, we must change our minds about how we live our lives. We must change our minds about trusting in ourselves and turn and trust in Christ, believe in Christ, His sacrifice, His resurrection, and His way of life. And that journey begins with forgiveness, which Jesus freely grants us. We need only repent and enter in. So if you have never expressed your faith in Jesus, if you've never asked for forgiveness for your sin, you can. And that promise will be immediately available. You don't have to wait. We're going to take part in Holy Communion in just a moment. And if you have not yet taken that step of expressing faith in Jesus and entering into His kingdom, you can do it as a part of this act of taking communion. Taking the bread and the cup can be your first act of faith as you enter into the kingdom. You simply say, as you are receiving the bread and the cup, you say, Lord, with this bread, with this cup, I choose to respond to you in faith. I choose to open up my life to you, to confess my sin to you and my need of you, and I welcome you into my life as King of kings and Lord of lords. I submit my life to you. And God will hear that prayer, and God will answer that prayer immediately. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. Trust in this good news today. And then if you choose to respond to Jesus in this way, let us know on your communication card or come and find me afterwards and talk to me. I'd love to know about that. 
Then finally, perhaps there is another sign of God's kingdom that you long for this morning. You've already entered into the kingdom. You've already, you already know that you are forgiven. But maybe there's something else. Because we know that God is always at work in the world, because we know that, that one day God's kingdom will indeed be victorious over everything that opposes it, opposes it, and because we know that Jesus' life, ministry, and miracles are both present realities and hints of things to come, I invite you to reach out to God this morning in prayer for whatever it is you need. After we take communion, and when we begin to sing the last couple of songs, Pastor Jordan and I will be down front waiting to pray for any who would like to come and ask for prayer. Are you sick and in need of healing? Are you suffering and in need of God's help and victory? Are you confused and in need of God's direction? Are you trapped in sin and in need of God's forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and liberation from your sin? Whatever the need, after we take communion together, come forward and ask for prayer or simply turn to someone whom you trust, and ask them to pray for you. That works too. Just don't hesitate to reach out and cry out to God and make your needs known to Him.